Good morning, again, for those of you latecomers, which is all of us, good morning. Good morning. Again, my name is Ali Shulman, and in case you didn't check the calendar, today is the first day of August, and it's hard to believe. But I've always thought that the end of July into August around here starts a new season. And not that season out there. Lord knows it gets hotter and hotter. And for all of those, I love people who move to Dallas and think, well, at least the heat's almost over. And you're like, oh, God bless. God bless. It'll be over in November. Good luck. But despite the temperature getting hotter, there is this shift in energy that happens around here at the end of July and August. Our sights get set on the new school year. And what's funny about this is it really doesn't matter whether you have a kid in the house or not. All of us kind of have been conformed and transformed to this idea that the year starts at the end of August. And so we start gathering our stuff, our planners. We do our own form of back-to-school shopping, whatever that looks like for you. We start planning things out. And more than anything, we start locking down into particular rhythms and particular routines. We start deciding what matters and what doesn't. And this year is particularly interesting because we've been through quite a year. And we're now facing this new season that we always face with a different level of appreciation. You see, the last year, 2020 and 2021, did a lot for us. It clarified a lot for us. As hard and as stressful as it was for many of us, it was the year that we decided to change jobs, that we decided to pursue a medical treatment, that we decided to move houses, that we decided to have kids. It was this year that we decided what mattered, what our priorities were. And I'm so thankful for that. And I hope that as we journey into this new year, that we can keep those priorities in mind. But there's another lesson that we learned from the pandemic that I'm afraid that we'll end up losing if we don't keep it at the forefront of our minds. This lesson is something that we all understood fundamentally a few years ago, but now as we go into this season of planning and rhythms and routines, it's easy to dismiss it and put it by the wayside. I think you can see this lesson in action if you've watched the Olympics at all the last week. And a huge confession, my family, we're the Olympic fiends. So we're the ones who watch the live coverage at 6 a.m., then go back and watch the primetime coverage at the end. I've watched every final that there is. Archery, dressage, do you know what dressage is? It's horse dancing, essentially. Dressage, archery, all the things. I have watched them because we love the Olympics. And as I watched this year, I, I recognized that there was something missing, a little something missing. And the obvious answer is, of course, there's no people, there's no fans. But the more I looked at it, I was like, no, it's not, it's not the fans that are missing. I'm missing these particular moments that I love about the Olympics. It's that moment after someone wins the gold or they qualify for the first time, or they're surprised. And they they look towards the crowd. And they look towards the crowd for a particular coach or particular family member. And then the announcers explain what that family member means. And I make my husband go back and rewind and watch all of it, because that's my favorite part. And it it annoys him. But I think it's important. But there's none of those moments. There's none of those moments this time, because everyone is in the US or in their home. 
And NBC tries to make it up with like the screens and these watching parties. And you'll see them when they interview the Olympians. They'll say, like, how do you feel seeing your mom on screen? But you can tell because the first word that most of them say to their parents or their wife or their friends is, I wish you were here. There's something about being together, being physically together, that is so important. And that's something that we learned this year through all the Zoom calls on the online school and everything that we did. There's something inexplicable about being in the same room, about sharing the experience with others. It matters. And it's not just us who anecdotally think this. Science proves this too. When you look at articles that are describing how offices need to get back online and what to do to bring people into the office, I read this Harvard Business Review article that said, if the meeting is task-based, then it can be a Zoom call, it can be virtual, it can be an email. But if it's to build relationships, if there's some type of team building involved, some type of goal that is dependent on the relationship, you should have that in person. Because data and studies show that when you are in person, you are able to strengthen relationships and bonds in a way that you could never do online, email, or via the phone. There is something fundamental about being in the presence of people. It matters. And it changes things. We are meant to be together. We are meant for connection. And this, of course, is something that early Christians understood easily. Sometimes when we think of what Christians did in the beginning or what they were oriented towards, we think of all the tasks that they had ahead of them. I mean, they literally had to convert this whole group of people, i.e. the Jews, in order to their side to tell them about Jesus and for people to believe them. But surprisingly, they weren't focused on the task at hand. They weren't focused on rebuilding a temple space. They weren't focused on going out and converting people. What early Christians did for the first 200 years, a long time, is they gathered. That was it. They were together. Together, in a room, every week, at someone's house. It was usually a dinner. And they would share a dinner together. And they would say prayers together. And someone would lead them and read scripture and preach a version of preaching. But it would change every time. That's what the early church looked like. And specifically, being together was shared over a meal. And it's not super shocking when we think about it because meals are super important in the Jewish faith and therefore in ancient Christianity. I actually think that Jewish life today is, is formed around this idea of meals. The biggest story in Judaism, that of the Exodus, is told over a Passover meal. And every week, families get together to share in Shabbat, dinner. Their whole holy day starts off with a meal. And this, of course, translates all over the place. There's Jesus who does half of his ministry over meals. If you really look at it, you'll see that Jesus goes and preaches over meals. He shares meals with lepers. He shares meals with sinners, with prostitutes. He invites people in with his friends, with Mary and Martha. He's always 
eating. He didn't get in trouble because he associated with sinners. He got in trouble because he ate with sinners. And then when he's resurrected and comes back to life, what's the first thing we learn about him? On the road to Emmaus, when he's walking with the disciples, what does he offer them? A loaf of bread. He eats with them. And then when he appears to his disciples later, what is he cooking on the beach? Fish, breakfast. He's cooking them a meal. There was something so important about meals. Something that I want to draw our attention to now because I think it says something about how we come together now. In Judaism, there is the Torah and then there's the Talmud. The Talmud is the commentary on the Torah. And it's just as sacred and just as holy. And there's a portion of the Talmud that I love, and I'm going to read it for you. It says, And now that we no longer have the temple in Jerusalem and its altar to bring about atonement for sin, a person's family table gains reconciliation and forgiveness. You see, the reason the meal was so central to everything that the ancient Jews did and that Jesus did is because the temple had been destroyed by the time the Bible was written. And so the family table, that was their temple. It was their altar. It was the place where wine and bread were shown. It was where candles were lit. Everything happened around the table. Every home, a temple. Every family, a sanctuary. Every table, an altar. Every meal, an offering. And every Jew, a priest, is what the Talmud says. It was the place where you could come and be in the presence of God. It was heaven on earth. It was where you shared in the presence of the Almighty. But there was something else about the table that was important to the Jews that we need to understand. Because the table was not just a connection with God, but it was also a connection with each other. You see, Later on in a rabbinic commentary, they're talking about this concept, and it says, animals feed, humans eat. Animals feed, and humans eat. And it's making the argument that eating is the social task. It is the human task. It is essentially what reminds us that we are human. It's a shared experience. It takes this act of eating from this biological principle into a place where community is formed, where shared experience is created. People sit down around the table, and when they do, they sit face to face. They share things with each other. Someone serves the food, someone prepares the food. There's a community built around the table. Jewish tradition recognizes a meal as a time for intimacy and fellowship and significant conversation. The same rabbi commented that people are fed and nourished around a table. And in this intimate setting, people talk with each other about what matters. That is why rabbis say that if people eat together and Torah talk is not exchanged, then the meal is in vain. See, it was more than just a meal. It still is more than just a meal. Coming around the table unites us with God and unites us with each other. It is not a surprise then 
that those who came in early Christianity had a lot to say about how we ate together. Like surprisingly, a lot to say about how we ate together. It's also not surprising that the tradition that Jesus gave us, the main one, was at a table, taking bread and wine, common food, and blessing them and saying this, do this in remembrance of me. And afterwards, Christians carried on this tradition, but they would meet for dinner, not for just bread and wine. The communion table looks off. I didn't forget the juice. Don't worry. We're doing it on purpose. All right? But the reason is, is that they came together over common food, over dinner. It wasn't a ritual. It wasn't a private act like we take it today. It was just a meal that they sat side by side, shared in each other, prayed, blessed the food, and that was all. So Paul, Paul had a lot to say about how we gathered together because apparently people weren't gathering together in the right way. So today, we are going to look at one of Paul's letters. And as a reminder, Paul was a church planner, the earliest one we know, who wrote a bunch of letters to these specific churches, specific communities that were meeting in houses in the second century. And we, I need you to pull out your phone. I haven't done this in three weeks. Y'all have gotten a break. So pull out your phone. I want you to find 1 Corinthians. If you're a kid, get your parents' phone. I want y'all to look it up too. 1 Corinthians, and then go to chapter 11. Now, here's the thing about 1 Corinthians before we start. There are a lot of bad interpreters out there. They take this, and they totally teach it without the context. You cannot do that with Paul's letters, because when he's addressing people, he's addressing specific issues that the church had written him before, and he's responding. Unfortunately, we don't have those original letters, so we're kind of guessing at what the situation is, but we have some pretty good guesses based on archaeology. So we're looking at chapter 11 here, and I'm going to set it up. We're looking at verse 17, so find verse 17. It doesn't matter which version you use. I use, this is NRSV. You can use CEB or NIV. Those are also good ones. Okay, we're starting at verse 17, and yours might have a title on the top of it that says Abuses at the Lord's Supper. Those were added later, but what he is addressing is that people weren't eating properly together. These gatherings that they had on Sundays, because it was on Sunday, they weren't doing it right. And so we'll talk a little bit about why they weren't doing it right, but let's read this part together. Now, in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. He's getting a little saucy. Paul gets a lot saucy in this part, okay? For, to begin with, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and to some extent, I believe it. Indeed, there have to be factions among you, for only so will it become clear who among you are genuine. So he's saying, I'm glad there's groups because that will prove who the genuine believers are. It is a little sassy, okay? Verse 20, when you come together, it is not really to eat the Lord's Supper. In other words, you're not doing what you are supposed to be doing. For when the time comes to eat, Each of you goes ahead with your own supper, and one goes hungry, and another becomes drunk. So someone goes hungry, and the other gets a lot of food and has a feast. What? Do you not have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you show contempt for the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What should I say to you? Should I commend you? In this matter, I do not commend you. All right, we'll end there. Do you hear his, like, he's not shy. Paul is not shy about about admonishing these folks, right? But if you read it offhand, my guess is that you'd be a little confused. It is really confusing. So let me explain what's happening. 
So when people would meet together, this was in Corinth. It was still part of the Roman Empire. And the way that Romans ate is they traditionally had two eating areas. One was the dining room that was inside the house, and the rest of the people would eat in the courtyard. This was super normal. Like, people did this as kind of a normal way of eating. No one was really offended about this. But the way that they broke it down is the people who were wealthier would eat in the dining room, and the people who were not would eat in the courtyard. And so, as far as we can assume, we're guessing that what was happening in Corinth is that the church was meeting per usual. But it included a lot of non-Jews. There were people who are not used to eating around a table. And so it included some very prominent members, and we learn later in the letter, some very wealthy members of Corinthian society. Most likely, one of them was the host. And when they hosted the meal, most likely, they followed the custom which is that the wealthier people would sit in the dining room and the poorer people would sit in the courtyard. And Paul is not happy about this. Someone tells him about this custom and he goes off on them because he says, you are not partaking in what Jesus told us to do. You are not doing what the Lord showed us to do. And he goes on and we'll read that next section as to why it matters, why he's saying, why does it matter that they sit separately? And this is where, verse 23, For I received from the Lord what I also handed on to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took a loaf of bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body that is for you. Do this in remembrance for me. This sounds really familiar, right? This is what we say generally at communion, and this is where we get it from. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's look at that last verse I read, 26. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The reason that it mattered that they were sitting separately was that it wasn't achieving the goal that Jesus set forth in the Lord's Supper. In other words, what Paul is arguing is that the character of Jesus' death has to match the character of the meal. The character of Jesus' death has to match the character of the meal. And what Paul highlights here but in other verses throughout this letter, is the character of Jesus' death is to submit individual freedom and individual prerogatives for the betterment of the whole. In other words, Jesus' love was self-sacrificing. It gave up everything. And so too must we be self-sacrificing in the way that we eat. And you see this, he goes in the chapter before, he's talking about eating again, this time about eating meat that's sacrificed to idols. Go to 10.23, it might be on the same page. But he's, and if your copy is a good translation, it has quotes around these things because what he's saying is that all things are lawful. That's what the Corinthians are saying. All things are lawful. And Paul says, but not all things are beneficial, the Corinthians say. All things are lawful. Paul says, but not all things build up. And then this is the verse. Do not seek your own advantage, but that of the other. Do not seek your own advantage, but that of the other. 
In other words, what he's trying to teach the Corinthians from the very beginning of the letter is like, look guys, you're missing the point entirely. It's not just about celebrating together. It's certainly not about individual freedom or individual salvation. The whole point of doing this is that we come together. And if we come together, it better look like a different community than those of the Romans. The character of Jesus' death, the character of what we believe in has to be reflected in that meal. You are sharing in something bigger than you can't understand. And when you do, you have to sit side by side and face to face. Otherwise, what Jesus is trying to teach us through this meal, it doesn't work. We have to be side by side. We have to be face by face. And Paul goes on in this letter, and he goes on to describe this attitude that Christians should have. And he starts to describe what it means to be of one body. He picks up this analogy that you've heard by now of the church as one body, and each has its own part, but they all function as one. And he starts to pick up speed, and he starts to describe it as this thing called agape, or love. And that's where we get the famous 1 Corinthians 13, which I bet 75% of you read at your wedding, that talks about this word agape. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels but do not have love, I gain nothing. And he goes on to describe what that agape is. It is patient and is kind. He describes it in depth, but not about individuals, but of how we should act as a body. In other words, it didn't work that they were sitting separately because they were bowing to the classifications of the world. If we were to be different, if we were to be the character of Jesus, then we had to be one. We had to be together. We had to sit at the same table. And Paul uses a word to describe this act, what happens at the table. One word that describes everything that Jews had thought happens at the table. It's a Greek word, and it's koinonia. It happens just a few times in Paul's letters. And when you look at it, it actually happens in a lot of different ways, and it's hard to piece together exactly what it means. He talks about it when he's talking about financial contributions, that everyone should have koinonia in the financial contributions. They should have a share Sometimes he's talking about it in relationship to Jesus, that he has koinonia with the sufferings of Jesus, that he has a share in the sufferings of Jesus. Sometimes it's described as fellowship, sometimes participation, sometimes share or sharing. But I think the best translation that we have is that koinonia, what happens at the table, a sharing both of God and with each other, it is communion. It is the coming together out of a spirit of agape in order to become more like one. A priest I know translates koinonia as all is one. And that is what we celebrate when we come to the table together. That there are differences among us and there are things that make us unique. But ultimately, when we share a meal together, 
when we practice that sacrifice, when we practice that love, that we are molding our hearts to be more like the one who came for us, that we are participating both in God's nature and then we are sharing that with everyone around us. It matters being here. It matters being together. There is some mystery and physical presence that we can't quite explain, but it is real. And so today, we are celebrating a version of koinonia. You see, the first time that these were celebrated, sometimes they were called the Lord's Supper, meaning that Jesus was the host, but more commonly, they were called the Feast of Agape, love feast. In fact, the Romans would describe Christians and their gatherings on Sundays as participating in love feast. And as a reminder today, we don't have the traditional grape juice because the food isn't what's important. The reminder is that ordinary things become extraordinary when we're together. And so today we have challah because that was the traditional food that Jews ate at their table, most likely what would have been offered in Corinth. And we have water because most of you have coffee, so if you need water, we're gonna get water. But we're gonna bless the drinks that we already have, and we're gonna bless the food that is here. And we're gonna participate together in this meal, knowing that by taking that blessing upon us, we are making a commitment to each other that bounds us not just to God, but to each other as well. Let us pray. Lord, you are our presence. You are the gift of presence here. You make us understand what it means to be part of a people. You make us understand what it means to be part of a family. Lord, there are sacrifices that we have to make to be here. There are conveniences that we give up. But we know that there is something at work in all of us when we show up together here, when we are the church that you created us to be, when you give us the sustenance that we need for the journey. We are thankful for your work here in this place. And we're thankful that we get the opportunity here to gather around the table of things that are ordinary, but with you, through your spirit, you have made them extraordinary. It is in your name that we pray. Amen. So we're going to do communion a little different today. I'm going to say a liturgy like we always do, and then we'll come and share in the table. So will you hear these words? Friends, it is no small coincidence that Jesus used the image of a meal in order to talk about what the kingdom of God looks like. He knew that we humans need each other, and the only way to make it through this journey is at the table, side by side. Jesus comforts us in saying, you too have a place at the table, and he challenges us to do the same. Go and welcome those into your homes, into your hearts, into your tables, into your churches, whoever will come is welcome. And through his letter to the Corinthians, Paul reminds us what is at stake at the table. That by sharing in a meal together, we have the opportunity to share in something greater. In the unconditional love of Jesus Christ. 
and that that love binds us both to him and to each other. Jesus is no longer physically here on earth, yet every time we gather around the table, his spirit is with us. And so it is with the confidence of his spirit that we can pray the words that he taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And now I invite you to take a moment on behalf of all those we do not know and cannot call by name, but who we know need our prayers. For the sick, for the dying, for those who need food and sustenance, for those who are lonely and need community for those who are healing, for those who are caring for others, for those who wait in the anxiousness of starting school soon, for those who are about to enter into new transitions, for those who are waiting for answers, for those who need blessings over treatments this week. Lord, hear our prayer. We know that God knows who needs our prayers and the spirit, the breath of God is blowing from within us outward as the spirit of compassion and presence. Jesus asks us to remember him every time we break bread and raise a cup and thanksgiving. In this feast of love and comfort, we call to mind the things for which we are deeply grateful. If you have coffee or a bottle of water, whatever you have, raise it with me and I'll raise this bread and bless it. We're gonna say a blessing together over all that we have, the ordinary things. So I'll say the first line and then you'll repeat and we'll do that over again. So let's say a blessing. Holy Comforter, Holy Comforter, we gather in your name, invited by Jesus, bound together with your spirit, in union with each other, feed our bodies, and our spirits with your comforting presence so that we might be your comfort to others. Bless this food and break open our hearts. Bless this drink and pour out your love. Amen. Okay, so we're going to come to the table the normal way we would in communion. So what we'll do is the side sections are going to go first. From the back forward, the ushers will help out. And then the center sections hang tight. You'll go at the end. We're all going to use the center aisle. And Anna and I will give you a piece of bread and a blessing. If you have a drink, you can walk that back to your chair and take them together if you'd like. They are blessed now. If you'd like to grab a water, feel free. They are blessed. And we will take them as a reminder of the blessing that we are to each other and to God. <laughs> 